Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener. If you like what we do on the Monday Christian Podcast, I just encourage you to subscribe to us on iTunes, leave us a five-star review that helps a lot, and consider giving a one-time donation on themondaychristian.com. Enjoy the podcast. You're listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program dedicated to helping you put into action the truth of God's Word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. And now, here are your hosts... Ezra Beyer and David Hardkoff. Dave, several weeks ago, we had Christopher Yuan on the podcast. And after we had him on, a uh, man by the name of Herman Mendoza reached out to me and said, hey, hey, I actually, I know Christopher. And he said, I'd be interested in coming on and sharing a little bit of my story. And I wasn't familiar with Herman's story, but I re- looked it up had the opportunity to read his book, and it's just absolutely fascinating. And so I think our audience is in for a treat today. Yeah, it's, it's always amazing, uh, not only just to hear stories like this, but also th- just uh, how amazing God's grace is. Yeah. And, uh, and, and sometimes, I don't know, I was talking with a colleague the other day, and just saying, you know, I've seen what people can do with like nifty planning and, you know, a little bit of a great team assemble. I, I've seen what people can do. And honestly, like we're not that impressive, but when you, when you see a story like Herman's where, where you see what God can do mm. when he steps mm. into somebody's life, um, I'm just, I'm just struck by, I'm looking forward to hearing him chat with us today, but I just, I long to see more of that as, and yeah. Uh, yeah. man, I, I'm excited to talk to him today. And I hope this is an encouragement uh, to our audience, maybe, maybe they've been praying for somebody for a while, and they're just like, if there's anybody that's too far gone, it's probably that person I'm praying for. Mm. But it's sort of out of rote; they they kind of dutifully do it. I, I pray that that Herman's story today would give them um, confidence that God is seeking people and that He loves them, and uh, that He can transform uh, anyone uh, yep. and move them from death to life. And uh, I'm just excited to chat with him today, man. Herman's the author of a book uh, called Shifting Shadows. You can kind of see it there. We'll leave the link in the description below. Fascinating read. I encourage you to pick up a copy or the audio version of it. And uh, just real briefly, he serves as an associate pastor at the direct and the director of Powerhouse uh, Kids Ministry at Promise Ministries International in, in New York City. Uh, well-known speaker, been on a number of the Christian networks that uh, that we've seen over the years, um, and just has a very compelling story. So let's go, go ahead and bring him in right now. Uh, Herman, welcome to the Monday Christian Podcast. Thank you for having me on, Ezra and David. It's a great uh, podcast. Yeah, well, man, what a delight. And this podcast, just so you know, it's a practical boots on the ground podcast. And we always say our goal is not like Christian church leaders, you know, in their ivory towers. It's the everyday man and woman driving to work, nine to five job, and they're popping this in. And I say that like a CD. We don't really do CDs anymore, but <laughs> pressing play, and they're they're looking for some encouragement, right? Pushing in the cassette, you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they're, they're looking for that. And and so this story just couldn't be more practical. So thank you for coming on. No, for me, it's a tremendous honor and, and, and to have this opportunity to be on this platform, especially I love the title of your podcast, uh, the Monday Christian Podcast, which is great, right? It's uh, right after Sunday service, you go yeah. into, uh, you know, your, your Monday uh, routines of work and, and so forth. And so 
I'm sure your audience is going to be blessed by this uh, wonderful testimony and what God has done in my life. It's, you know, it's interesting when I, so I stepped back from pastoring full time and, and just uh, several years ago. And when that happened, it just kind of gave me a fresh perspective for what people think about all throughout the week. Sometimes when you're just immersed in it, in a pastoral culture, you tend to just think you read books and in your kind of little isolated zone, but then you think, okay, what are people actually thinking about all throughout the week? And often it's very practical stuff. And just as Dave mentioned in the intro, like, can God actually show up in really hard circumstances? So you had some tough circumstances. Let's, let's just go ahead and get right into it. What was your childhood like? Um, I, you know, living in, in New York City, uh, I was uh, born in Queens, New York. My parents came from the Dominican Republic, with my two old, uh, eldest brothers. And, uh, it, you know, they arrived in this uh, borough, which is so diverse. Uh, I could only imagine New York City with over 11, 12 million people. Um, and so I was, you know, brought up in this neighborhood, which predominantly at the time was not, there weren't many Hispanics. Mm. Uh, but in the late 70s, a lot of Latinos started to arrive, uh, you know, in, in this particular borough of Queens. Um, my parents, again, they're, you know, coming from the Dominican Republic, they came to America for the American dream you know, to, to own a house, uh, to raise a family. And, uh, and so three of us, three of, of our, two of my brothers, including myself, we got involved with, in early age, with gangs. And then eventually that uh, inspired us to, to get involved with drugs, you know, and, and consume drugs and alcohol. How and early so was it, that? That was, I started it when I was 13 years of age. Yeah. So I started at a young age and, hmm. um, you know, it was a thing to do. It was the, the culture of the times, right? It was, you know, marijuana was readily available. Um, and it started off with, with marijuana and then eventually uh, went on to hardcore drugs, uh, such as, you know, cocaine and heroin. And so got myself into some, uh, uh, you know, trouble with the law for robbery. Um, and then right after coming out of juvenile detention center, my parents decided to send me to the Dominican Republic thinking that would end, you know, this young boy, uh, uh, his, his troubles, right? Yeah. Because uh, I was causing uh, havoc in my community and in my home. And so my mom sent me to my grandparents' home, uh, thinking that would change my behavior and my ways. Um, and so they registered me into a private school. And I am in the Dominican Republic, you know, a city boy <laughs> going into a uh, an island that I wasn't familiar with because I was only visiting Dominican Republic when I was like five, six, seven years of age. So I had no idea about the culture itself. And so I, you know, immersed myself in the culture and, and, but I just didn't want to continue to go to school. I wanted to hang out with the guys in the corner, you know, yep. date girls. And so my grandparents said, okay, you want to be a tough kid, right? Since I, I've gotten expelled from school. Uh, due to my behavior. So my parent, my grandparents uh, decided to take me out to the field. They owned some land there uh, in the agriculture business. And so here my city boy with a machete in my hand, <laughs> working the field. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I wasn't, you know, called to do this, you know. What's going on? <laughs> uh, and so I was there working with my grandparents. And, uh, and so I, I just decided to just continue to party, you know. In the Dominican Republic, unfortunately, 
um, you know, alcohol was readily available, even though I was a young person, I wasn't of age and I had access to alcohol. Uh, you know, I, I say that the only good thing that came out of the Dominican Republic is I, I met my girlfriend, then eventually be my wife, which uh, my wife of 36 years. Um, wow. So, yeah. And so, you know, being there and being with my grandparents, my grandparents decided to contact my mom and say, look, we have to send him back. This boy is just causing so much trouble here in the Dominican Republic. And uh, we just, we're going to send him back. So they sent me back to New York City. And uh, so I strained my act out for a little bit. I didn't know God. I didn't have uh, a knowledge of, of Christianity in itself. Uh, I knew of, of Christianity, but I didn't have a personal relationship with God. And so I went to high school. I reengaged with my then girlfriend. Then she became my wife. Um, we moved out uh, right out of high school and we got married um, and we formed a family. And so during that time, this I'm talking about now the mid-80s. As you all know, that New York City and across America was, uh, was just a problem with narcotics. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In particular, cocaine. Mm. Uh, cocaine was causing so much, you know, uh, destruction in, in, in our cities across America. For, for, uh, for, and, let me just pause you real quick. For people that aren't familiar with cocaine, myself included, right? Um, what is that like the first time you try it? Why is that so addictive? You know, it, it's one of those uh, narcotics where it just heightens your awareness, you know, um, and it was a thing back in the 80s. A lot of the celebrities used to use it. So it was mm. sort of like a, a fad, a cultural thing of Hollywood. Uh, only the elite of Hollywood can consume this, this uh, narcotic. And, and so when it was available in New York City and it became more available because of the cartel uh, during that time, um, I started to get involved in it. And my brothers were also involved in the sales of narcotics. And so I, was, I, was, I wouldn't say I was thrust into the business, but I saw that it was lucrative and it was a way that I can make quick money because I was unemployed at the time uh, and I had to raise a family. And so I figured, you know what? This is easy money. Uh, and I approached my brothers and I said, look, I want in. And they said, sure, come. You can count some money. And so I counted it was uh, $1.2 million in a, in a stash house. Yeah, I saw read that the first time. Yeah, what was crazy. going through your mind when you saw that cash <laughs> and then taking out, wow. I think you said 10,000 the first week. What, yeah. what was going through your mind? I was only 21 years of age. And so mm. wow. when I saw this cash, you know, they, they had counting machines there. The TV was blasted to muffle the sound. And I saw this money, you know, young person. I was like, this is easy. And so once I was engaged in this operation, I saw how sophisticated it was because they had everything in place uh the folks that came up to pick up the drugs were part of the cartel and they came in you know uh, with uh, vehicles that were uh, disguised in terms of you know tinted windows um they had compartments uh in the this particular they call them traps in these particular vehicles where you you know turn on the ignition uh you know put the radio at a certain station and then the compartments will pop open uh, and they would house the drugs there or cash. Cool. And so I got involved in, in this activity for, for a number of years until I got arrested uh, with 32 kilograms of cocaine. Wow. And sent to Rikers Island. For, for people that are, aren't, like, when you say 32 kilos, 
What's what is that? Yeah, what's the like, street what's value? The, yeah, what's, what's the street value? What was the street value at the time? Three point eight million dollars. Three point eight million dollars. Now that's a that's a bunch of laptops. That's a bunch <laughs> of laptops. So during that time, I had all these millions of dollars passing through my hands, hanging out with celebrities, all these you know, uh, number of uh, hip hop artists, um, going to the all the famous clubs here in New York City. The Copacabana at the time was really you know considered one of the most popular clubs, Palladium, and I'm spending thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of dollars in this lifestyle, thinking I was, you know, this is part of my arrest, thinking that I was on top of the world, that I had all, you know, all the women that I wanted, and that I had all these things that were, uh, you know, available to me, and until my world came crashing down, which was, I got arrested with 32 kilograms of cocaine. So I'm in a federal, I mean, excuse me, I'm in a uh, Rikers Island, and the very next day, I pick up the newspaper, and it read, blasted across the newspaper, $3.8 million of cocaine seized. Uh, two brothers arrested, facing life in prison. Now, I was only about 22 years of age, 23, and I was thinking, what am I going to do now? I you know, was thinking about my parents. I was thinking about my wife. I was thinking about my children. But I didn't have this godly conviction as the scripture says it was more of a worldly sorrows mm. i was just concerned about them obviously but also concerned about myself and my well-being i wanted to get out of jail but it wasn't like you know god forgive me you know yeah. look what i've done I, I've, I've broken the law i've hurt so many people by spewing the drugs i was spewing out into society it wasn't that kind of conversation i was having with my yeah. brother or in my mind and so eventually uh they sentenced me. We had lawyers in place um, that we utilized for these kinds of operations. They were well known in New York City. We paid over $250,000 to acquire their services. Um, and so once I completed my time, uh, three, three, uh, they gave me three or nine years, I was close to uh, finishing my time, but there was a program that was available to me. It was called Shock. And basically, they will reduce the remaining time if I decided to sign up to this uh, military-style uh, facility. And you didn't so think it was military at the time. You thought it was going to be, I would correct me if I'm wrong, but fairly relaxed, right? Going yeah, I thought it? it was, exactly. I thought it was just going to be a lot of exercises. Uh, you know, I didn't think it was going to be uh, so extreme as it, as it was. Herman, um, can I have a question for you? Okay. Like, where is your, you, you, had, you mentioned your family where was your wife in all of this? Can you give me a timeline? You already had children. Like how, what kind of strain was this putting on, on your family? Was your wife involved in a lot of your lifestyle things or was it kind of had like these two separate worlds that you were keeping going? What was that like? I had two separate worlds. I mean, my wife knew the, the things I was involved in um, yeah. and she didn't want no, you know, obviously she wanted to know uh, all the ins and outs of the operation. And what I was doing, and I would never bring drugs to my home. I, I lived in a gated community in Pennsylvania. And um, so I used to go there only in the weekends. Uh, during the day, uh, during the weekday, weekdays, I used to stay out in New York City. I had apartments all over uh, here in New York City. But she had no idea of my, invo you know, my, my involvement in the sense of, of, of the day-to-day -day operations. Um, what did she think you did uh, I mean, in retrospect? Knew, I mean, she knew I was involved with narcotics, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but she thought that I was, you know, I had all the businesses as well. We had a construction company going on, but it was a front, you know, for yeah. uh, laundry money and our narcotics operation. Um, and, you know, she was frightened uh, at the fact that they could have killed me. They could have killed, you know, my children and, and they could have killed her. So she was constantly worried about my well-being. Uh, she wanted me out of the, you know, the business. Uh, but I was just too thr- I was just too involved in it. That was my world, you know. And so uh, during the daytime and nighttime, I had you know this operation of narcotics, uh, selling hundreds of kilos of cocaine. But when I would go home, I would sort of disconnect from that world and, and be like supposed to be a dad, yeah, a husband, yeah. you know, a citizen. Well, when, you know, when you yeah. go down that road, why is it that so many stories? It just always ends. It seems to end the way. No, sadly, not as yours ended. You know, sometimes people are shot and killed. Um, but why is it so hard to get out? Yeah, I think it's because it seems so easy, uh, mm. and and seeing so you know having the the possessions of, of money, uh, the party life, and you're so blinded by sin, uh, you don't see the reality of what you're doing. So. Mm. It's sort of, you know, like the Bible says that the, uh, the God of this age has blinded the mind of the unbelievers. Wow. And so that's what happened to yeah. me. I was so blinded by sin and so involved in this lifestyle of just party, spend, again, spending tens of thousands of dollars and having millions of dollars passed through my hands, thinking this is life. You know, yeah. every day is a party. You know, it's not going to happen to me. Other people get busted. Other people get killed. Um, and Do you find that's life. common when you talk to other people that, that you that you work with that that are in that is it and not even just in the drug scene, but people that are just partying up, having a great time, whether it's on Wall Street or whatever, and life seems to be good. Is that a common theme in their life? It is. It is because I know a lot of business people, you know, obviously legitimate business people yeah. um, and, you know, professionals and uh, medical professionals. And, and some some of these folks are not serving God. And they think that, hey, I have all this money and, and you know, it, it becomes their idol. Uh, mm. And so for them to disconnect uh, from that reality of the, their, their world of money and possessions and having things that they can't relate to the spiritual realm, yeah. that the only thing that can really satisfy you is Jesus Christ. You know, I mm. learned the hard way. And so every time I speak mm. to young people or I go to universities to speak or I go to a federal prison or state prison, I let them know of those two worlds. There's, there's a world of fantasy and there's a world of spiritual growth and spiritual understanding of that. There's nothing wrong of having things, uh, but your priorities must be set on Christ and Christ alone because the mm-hmm. uh, possessions and the things that, that God could bless you with, those are temporary things. I mean, Dave, we talked about this a lot, we, even in a ministry context where churches will see a degree of success, right? And they'll see growth and then they view that growth as confirmation that, hey, we must be doing the right thing. And exactly. it's like, well, how do you break out of that? Because God seems to be blessing and people are coming to faith in Christ. But then all the while, maybe it's a corrupt leadership system like like the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast that we've talked about, um, or it's just the, the pastors having a moral failure. And then all the while, it seems like people are coming to faith and it's like, well, how can you argue with this? And I, it, it's like sustained success over time is one of the hardest things to pull back from Sorry. Um, if you're doing what's wrong, because it just feels like, well, why should I? There's no advantage to it. 
Yeah. Exactly. And I think people become lukewarm yeah. in, their, in their stance, in their position. Uh, whether do I follow Christ to the fullest or do I, you know, mediocrity, right? You know, kind yeah. of play this game. Uh, okay, I, I can commit a sin here and there. I can just go back to God and say, forgive me. Yep. You know, uh, yeah. and that's what I did it, throughout my, my testimony. You're going to hear about that. Well, I wonder if, as you know, we talked to, you mentioned Christopher Yuan and others, but others that have sort of, I would consider your testimony, Herman, pretty dramatic. Uh, I, there's a clarity in how you speak about following Christ that I think sometimes is lost in our church world. We, we talk a lot about sort of like these vague uh, spiritual sounding platitudes, you know, seven ways to, to better your life sort of things, you know? And yes. that in some ways that's appealing to people because the truth is we all know uh, to some degree or another that something's missing. No matter how much you party, how much you have, it, when you lay down and no one else is around, I think very often we're all chasing something that we believe will fill that vacuum and void. And I just, I appreciate the clarity with which you speak. Um, like, no, the issue is you're dead spiritually and you need to be made alive in Christ. Like Amen. that is, that is a Christian, a thoroughly Christian message, message that oftentimes is kind of met with a degree of scoffing, whether it's foolishness or a stumbling block, however it is. I just, I appreciate folks like yourself that are, are speaking clearly about this. And um, so anyways, let's get back to your testimony. Well, thank you, Dave. Uh, yeah, well, one of the areas I'd like to go right now, before we get into the prison and then you're coming to faith in Christ, I'd like us to just kind of walk through, again, because for so many people, this is not their world at all. Yeah. And and so what does it look like? Let, let's go to your first taste of success. When you're going into restaurants, multiple girls are coming up mm. to you and you're experiencing that. Um, what is going through your mind? Are you even having a thought of God at that point? I'm not having any thought of God. Um, it's all about the party. It's all about the thrill. My adrenaline is running. I have an entourage of people behind me. Um, mm. You know, limousine is outside waiting for me. Uh, the best liqueurs, the, the the best champagnes, you know, and I'm thinking, cops can't, they, they can't stop me. They, they can't touch me. I'm untouchable. You know, that kind of attitude and that I had, uh, you know, and that was running through my mind. So I figured I would never get arrested. You know, mm. that's what you go through in your mind. You figured you never get arrested until, mm. again, until I was in Rikers Island. Yeah. Yeah. They sent me off. Uh, just to uh, make a quick point, Dave, um, a lot of people want to hear a gospel that's like sort of tickling their ears, yeah. you know, makes them feel good. Uh, yeah. But again, with me, the same thing. When I was in Rikers Island, and I, and then they sent me off to this, uh, you know, also county uh, facility, then eventually to the shock program that I signed uh, to be involved in this program to get my sentence reduced. Um, I remember there was a few of the ex-Marines on my face saying, you know, get in parade rest, you know, give me a hundred push-ups. <laughs> I'm like, what is this, you know? Uh, and so I decided to go to a chapel. Now, it was a Catholic chapel. And I, I entered this chapel and skeptical, you know, kind of looking around and so, and so forth. And, but this is what I said. This, this is my prayer. And I don't think I was praying to God, but this is what I said. I said, God, if you allow me to get released from this program, and I finished the program, I promise you that I would not drink alcohol for six months. Now, 
people, when people are in jail, they make a lot of promises. <laughs> uh, it wasn't like, God, you know, forgive me. It was like, Lord, if you allow me to get released from this shock program, I promise you, I'm not going to drink alcohol for six months. Now, it was ignorance on my part. And saying, instead of saying, God, forgive me of my sins, Lord, save me, right? Hmm. Uh, and I didn't know anything about Christianity. This is the, the first chapel I went to was just, let me go to this chapel. Um, and so I, I finally, uh, you know, finished the program uh, six months. And uh, it, was, it was a six-month program. And when I was released, I was sober for six months. So I went to celebrate that I have been sober for six months and I wanted to end my sobriety. And I ended up in a, you know, restaurant with the old associate. And I said, let's have a drink, let's party. And how the enemy set to celebrate up. sobriety. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> and um, as I was sitting across, uh, a familiar face came to view. And he came up to me, he said, you know, in Spanish, he said, you know, hello. He gave me salutations. He says, look, I want to talk to you. And he put me to the side and he said, look, I'm controlling over a, a ton of cocaine. Wow. That's over a thousand kilograms of cocaine. That's and he said, crazy. if you want in, you let me know. Now, this guy was the, uh, the nephew of one of the, the leaders of the cartel in, in Colombia. And he said, look, let me know. So I was well, dealing with well, what's the conscience. difference? Just real quick, come back to the other What's the difference in lifestyle there, right? From what where you're at right in that moment, what what are you going to be doing occupation wise? What are you going to be making versus what he's offering? Exactly. So at the time I had a job because I had to have employment okay. yep. uh, due to my parole status. And so I made up these little business, I mean eventually, but I was working for a company uh, in management selling sorbet ice creams. And so nice en enough of the sorbet. <laughs> and now this individual <laughs> approaches me and says, I have a better offer for you. I have a ton of cocaine uh, where you can make millions of dollars once again. And I was dealing with my conscience, you know, and, and my mind was racing whether I get involved again, knowing the consequences. But in light of that, I was thinking about the millions of dollars that I could be making. And I accepted and so I received 11 kilos of cocaine to start off. And I, again, once again, involved in the sales of narcotics, once again, until I get arrested on a federal indictment. Your um, wife has no idea at the time? She knew. Uh, she knew uh, that I was involved once again because she saw this money coming to, the, to my home and spending a lavish lifestyle. Uh, and uh, I remember that I was with one of my, my second oldest brother, because when I got my first, when I was arrested the first time, I was arrested with one of my brothers. Mm -hmm. On the second arrest, I was arrested with my second oldest brother. Hmm. And so we're now in a federal prison with a federal indictment, right? This is now the United States of America versus the Mendoza brothers. And um, I hired the same attorneys, and uh, got bailed out with a half a million dollars, $500,000. We put up some property, um, was released, and all I wanted to do was drink every single day to numb the pain. I was just so uh, empty and void, thinking, what am I going to do now? I mean, my life is over, pretty much. So I started drinking and drinking every single day, and I went to my attorney's office one day, and I said, look, 
what's the situation? What am I going to get? He said, you're facing 18 years to 25 years of incarceration. At that point, I said, I didn't say, I didn't say anything to him. I, I just, I left uh, and I, I was speaking to a couple of my friends and I said, look, I'm going on the run. I'm going to become a fugitive. I'm not going to go to court, my court appearance. And that's what I did. So I was hiding in different apartments that I had with different women that I was staying with, um, just trying to find solace, trying to find peace. But I didn't know that I would eventually find it in Christ. But I was just, you know, I wanted to just end my life. And one day coming out of a, a club, uh, drinking and partying, I told my driver, take me to my house. And I, I've been on the run for about six months. And as I arrived home the very next day, my wife receives the phone call and it was the police. And they told her, tell your husband to surrender himself. And if he has any guns, to toss it out the window. Uh, and she wakes me up and she says, look, the cops have the house surrounded. You know, and the, my very first reaction was to put on my clothes and try to jump out the window. And when I re realized that the house was surrounded by police officers, I, I looked at my wife and I said, look, my life is over. I want you to open the door. So they arrested me um, and they hauled me into the uh, a, a waiting car. And as they were taking me to the prison, um, I, I, you know, I turned around uh, briefly and I looked at my home and the, the cops were celebrating, taking pictures. We got the, you know, big drug lord. And, and as, I would, as they were taking me to a federal detention center, I looked at the marshal, I told the marshal, sir, open the back of this door while the car was in motion. I said, I want to end my life right here because my, my life is worth nothing. Now, little did I know that my brother has surrendered his life to Christ. I had no idea because I had no communication with him because I was out, out on the run. So I couldn't communicate with my family members. I didn't know what was going on with his case. And he had prayed and said, God, send my brother to the same facility, same dormitory where I'm housed so I can share this great gospel to him. And God would have it no other way. Mm. I arrived to the same facility, same dormitory. I, actually, I was in five south, but when I saw my brother for the very first time, he extended his hands up in the air and said, praise the Lord, hallelujah. And I looked at him, I said, Praise the Lord, hallelujah. We're in jail, man. Are you crazy? Have you lost oh, your man. mind? What do you mean, hallelujah, praise God? We're locked up. We're facing life in prison. But I had no idea of his conversion and his transformation. His contents was different. His speech was different. And he had a peace within him that I didn't understand. Um, yeah. When you say his countenance was different, what do you mean by that? Like... Was when you and his speech was different because we often hear people talk about that. Like, how give me an example? How did he talk different than he did before? For example, he, you know, when we were in the streets and partying and selling drugs, he had this look in his, in his face and his eyes. Uh, it was just all about, you know, sin. Um, and so when I first saw my brother in prison, uh, now as a new man in Christ. He just looked cleaned up and his eyes were different. He had sort of like a glow, if you will. Uh, it was mm -hmm. just a, his, way, his, his, his way of speaking, um, you know, his, 
his his speech again before he was cursing constantly he wasn't cursing you know and, and it was just about god all he wanted to talk to me about was about god so it was just wow. totally different i'm like what happened to you you know i wasn't understanding but i just wanted to deal with my current situation yeah i didn't want to hear about god i just wanted out that's all I what led to the, what led to the pivot there where you stopped focusing just on your current situation and you focused on getting right with god it took about six months. Uh, my case took a turn for the worse. Uh, my attorney said, look, uh, you know, you're facing a lot of time. You're facing close to 25 years of incarceration. My wife had left me at that time. Um, and I didn't know what to do. I had no other way out. I, I was like, what should I do? But I saw my brother content. He was, uh, you know, he was just so, uh, just so content with the situation. I'm like, What's going on here? I mean, you, we're locked up. And he said, look, I want you to come to church tonight. And I want you to hear the gospel. Because God has a message for you. And so as I walked with him to this chapel, now, just for your, your viewers, uh, to, to just kind of give a, a paint a, a picture here. It's a day room within a dormitory, a sublock, where it was being run by inmates. And so I, as I enter into this chapel, I was having this conversation with God. I, again, I had no knowledge of God. I had no relationship with God. It was one of those things like, you know, God, if you're for real, just, I just want peace. Fill, fill this void. I'm going crazy. I'm depressed. I'm incarcerated. You know, I'm confined to these uh, walls and I don't know what to do. My wife had left me. Uh, you know, my case took a turn for the worse. Uh, I was a fugitive. You know, I, I don't know what to do here. So I just wanted peace. So as I entered the chapel, you know, here goes this jailhouse preacher preaching a very simple message. And towards the end, he says, look, you know who you are. And there was about 60 inmates there. He said, you've been chasing after things. And all those things have brought you to a place that has been desolate, dead ends, and has not fulfilled your life. What God wants you to do is to come to him and he's going to give you peace and that peace that surpasses all understanding. And that's what I was looking for, peace, because I felt so depressed and mm. I, I felt that conviction in my heart. You know, I, I consider myself like one of those uh, Apostle Paul because it was a mm. radical transformation in mm. my case. I remember I went up to the altar. And he says, look, you know who you are. As I walked to the altar, I just felt, you know, uh, this peace that enveloped me, that this, this joy and peace, even though I was incarcerated, then I felt convicted for the very first time of my sins. Mm. Because before it was just like, you know, I would cheat on my wife, you know, commit adultery. I would, you know, lie to the parole officers. And, and, and then I, I had this uh, scheme going on with that, that, I, that I had a business, but it wasn't a business, it was to launch your money. And so people thought I was a businessman. I was hanging out with different celebrities and, and, and they, you know, million dollar homes, five million dollar homes, thinking that I was a businessman. So all these lies. And I wanted to make, you know, amends with the people that I've harmed. And, you know, I was speaking to God, I was like, wow, this is for real, this is great. I felt, you mm. know, that the, all the burdens of, of my sin was just sort of, you know, being released. Uh, and I saw, you know, in, in my mind, I just kind of like, a. To, to encapsulate this, but it was like vision or pictures of the people that I've harmed by wow. selling drugs. Now, I wasn't on a street corner selling drugs. 
I was, you know, working within the cartel, so I was in a different position. But I, I, I pictured and I kind of saw the, those addicted, you know, folks that, that had to steal and kill and, and mom, you know, the, the mom and dad suffering because of their son or daughter that's involved in, in these, these drugs. And I just wanted to just call everyone that I knew, you know, to say, I'm sorry. And I contacted my mom and I told my mom, I said, look, mom, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm born again. And she was like, what? You know, born again? And I said, I'll explain to you later. But, you know, she was happy for me. And uh, I tried to reach my wife and I couldn't get in contact with my wife. And eventually, uh, after a few months in prison, this is where I met Christopher Yuan. Uh, my brother and I, we became the, the pastors of this small chapel. He mm -hmm. was the pastor and I was the co-pastor and we were pastoring these inmates. And so as they will arrive, such as Christopher, we will have our so-called deacons you know, of our church. They will go and, and provide a, a pair of slippers, some food for the newcomers and say, welcome to the house of God. We have services in the back uh, conducted by uh, the Mendoza brothers. And that's how I met Christopher Yuan. That's, <laughs> that's God crazy, man. Yeah, yeah. So I, I started to, I enrolled in um, Bering University and other universities to, to really, you know, get the full knowledge of, of the Bible uh, in theology. And um, I started learning and learning more. And then there was a, a mentor, one of my mentors, uh, he, he went home to be with the Lord. His, his, his name was Leroy Rixey. He was a radio personality. That's right. What you guys do, I commend you because you don't know how far you can reach people uh, through these means. And it's very important because he reached us, this individual named Leroy Rixey. And we wrote to him from prison. We said, look, we need a mentor. And, and he helped us in, in our walk with God uh, by sending us Bibles. We wrote to different organizations, you know, the Billy Graham organization, uh, and other local churches to help us. Uh, with Bibles, the American Bible Society at the time. Um, and we started to grow that ministry, and it was incredible. Do you incredible find now that you're, oh, sorry, do you find now that you're out, and we'll get to that in a second, that it's almost harder to keep that level of intimacy with God that you first experienced mm -hmm. because of just the sheer time and desperation mm -hmm. that you felt? Because what I'm getting at is I think sometimes we lose that sense of desperation and urgency for for God just because of out of complacency in the West. How, how have you maintained that now that you're out? That's a very good question. Um, I've been asked that question the, the, my, the first year I was released, the second year, because that's hmm. a testimony in itself from what, I've, what God has enabled me to accomplish. Uh, but, um, you know, people ask me that question in the first few months when I was released. They said, look, you don't want to go back? Don't you miss that lifestyle? What keeps you motivated? It is just the, the power of God, his love for me, what he did for me. He saved myself and my wife. My wife eventually came to the Lord during mm. my incarceration. Um, you know, she wanted to get a divorce, and I fasted and prayed for her. And, she, and in that visiting area, she said, look, I got bad news to share with you. And I said, I want to share the good news with you. And I, I said, look, forgive me of my sins. We confess our sins to one another. And she received Christ in that waiting area. Um, and so I, I remember that every single day and remember the power of God and what he can do in a life that he can change, you know, anyone, you know, again, uh, go, going back to what I'm doing now, uh, I have spoken at chapel for the New York Mets. 
to NBA <clears throat> players, uh, met you know uh, Supreme Court uh, justices. Um, for they contact me for uh, counseling. Uh, they support an organization that I once had before, you know, been to the UN, was recognized by one of the former presidents of the United States. I mean, the list goes on. This is what God can do. God can take an individual as myself just because this individual said, yes, Lord, I believe in you, Lord. Forgive me of my sins. Change this life, you know, and God transformed me and, and took a broken vessel and, and made me new. Mm -hmm. Uh, made me a spokesperson for his kingdom uh, out, in, out here in society. And uh, I've traveled to over 50 countries worldwide, you know, training world Incredible. leaders. Yeah. Talk, talk about Mario, the day your, um, <clears throat> your wife accepted Christ, how you got out. Yeah, uh, th that was an, an experience. Are you referring to when my wife received Christ the day that... Uh, yeah, she, she so did. you were you, your buddy. You're talking about fasting and praying for each other. And if I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he says I'm going to fast and pray for your wife if you fast and pray for me. Is that correct? Yeah, it, yeah. that's correct. So when yeah. we were in, I was incarcerated, uh, and he comes up to me, and he says, "Look, I want to pray for your wife because I hear you talking about her, and and I want you to pray for my case. And let's fast and pray for three days, no food, no water. And we did that." And on the third day, they, uh, they deported this individual back to his uh, homeland. And uh, that week, the CEO contacts me and he says, uh, you know, Mendoza, you have a visit. So I go down to the visiting area and my wife was there. Mm. And, and again, we reconciled, you know, our, our differences. She accepted Christ and she sold out for Jesus. And she works with me mm. in the ministry. We work with, uh, with children. On a, mm. a ministry dubbed the 414 window, which is in hey, around 114 countries. Yeah. Can I ask you? Um, so you mentioned fasting. Um, is that um, uh, a practice that is regular in your life? Is that something that still happened out, outside of prison? Is that a, something when you have a, a need or something you're really seeking God about, you tend to do? Can you talk to us a little bit about that practice and whether it's still a part of your life? Sure, definitely. It's still a part of my life. Um, you know, obviously, it reminds me of the story of David, um, you know, when he fasted and, and, and prayed and, hmm. and uh, for his child not to be snuffed out. Hmm. And, um, and after he fasted and prayed, uh, you know, he cleaned up, he washed up, and they looked at David. He says, look, his countenance is no longer sad. I mean, he's, hmm. he's like, what, what changed here? You know, and David said, well, I... I fasted and prayed and asked God and God didn't answer my prayer. And so I'm going to continue to press on, you know? Uh, and so when there's a pressing need, I take those extreme fasting where I totally separate myself, whether it be with music. When I say music, meaning uh, I don't listen to secular music uh, once, in a, once in a while, but uh, mm -hmm. more of the oldies, <laughs> secular music. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. more, I'm more involved in, in Christian music, but uh, I, I just isolate myself from uh, when I say the world is the things that I love to do, you know, sports and, and have you, and just concentrate on prayer and the need uh, for individuals or country or issues, and I fast and pray. Uh, so it, it is a part of me. Uh, obviously, it's, it's not something that, that I uh, practice often, like I did in prison, um, but it's, it's definitely... Uh, something to uh, participate in because uh, God answers prayers, most definitely. Mm. How did you get out? 
what did those initial years look like after you got out and how have things changed to this day? Uh, so I was eventually sentenced. The prosecutor reads the, my case and says, Your Honor, this individual has, has done some amazing things uh, in terms of education, in terms of helping people. Uh, I mean, it, it's just incredible. And so I hope that upon his release that he would uh, continue to do the things that he was doing in prison out in society. And uh, I couldn't believe it. I looked at my attorney. I said, did he just represent me? He's the prosecutor. Wow. Um, and so I was eventually sentenced uh, close to five years of incarceration. Um, and, and then I was sent to Lewisburg Penitentiary and then eventually to Allenwood. This is located in Pennsylvania, the state of Pennsylvania. And there God used me to minister. I was the, the chaplain of the facility. said, look, I want you to preach to these inmates, you know, your fellow inmates. Uh, and, and I did that. And I ran into a politician by the name of Traffic uh, from Ohio. <laughs> and he used to tell me, he goes, he said, uh, Minister Mendoza, he goes, I'm this close to converting. I'm this close to converting. You always got me persuaded. <laughs> He's a really interesting mm -hmm. character. Uh, and then uh, uh, when I was about to get released, who picks me up? The parole of New York. And they said, uh, Mr. Mendoza, you're not, you're not going to be released because you violated the parole on your New York case, on, on the 32 kilograms of cocaine, I was out on parole by getting uh, arrested on the federal charge. So I'm like, Lord, this is where you want me to be at? <laughs> Rikers Island, the notorious jail to minister to these inmates. And I arrive and I describe it in the book how, how when I arrived there and I see all these inmates in this cell and I felt so broken hearted at the fact that I was involved in the sales of narcotics. And, and here are the folks that have that are, are, are sons and daughters, uh, sons, right, uh, of, of these parents, right, that perhaps have worked so hard to give them, you know, a future. And, and because engaging in narcotics and drugs and alcohol, they're in prison. And I'm responsible for that. And so I felt so broken and I just started ministering to them. And, and I, I just felt a need to just pray over them. And eventually the, the judicial judge sees my case and says, uh, Mr. Mendoza, I'm going to release you. You have an amazing mm. track record. And I was released from prison. And ironically, how God works is that all my friends now are law enforcement officers. Again, Supreme Court uh, judges that contact me that have sent me you know, thousands of dollars uh, when I had this organization before. And it's, it's just crazy what God can do in a life, right? That all my friends are, are law enforcement officers. And I share this quick story with you, uh, which is funny. I, I was officiating a wedding for a friend and uh, we were doing some rehearsals and um, he brought his best man. And so I, I had asked him, what do you do for a living? And he said, I'm an agent. And I said, what agency do you work for? He said, the, F, uh, the DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency. So I had asked him, do you know so-and-so? And he said, of course, he was my partner back in, you know, in the hmm. 80s or early 90s. And I said to him, well, he was my arresting officer. Mm. And he looks at That's me and says, that is crazy. And all of that to say that his wife was praying for him and saying, God, send someone that e either did time, that now is a pastor or a minister that can share the gospel with my husband because he's, he's an unbeliever. So when he sees me that I was, you know, incarcerated for narcotics as a big drug lord and now a pastor, he's like, this is, God is real, you know? So we mm. stay in touch. I, I give him a call, so, you know. That's crazy. Uh, often. 
I'd like you to talk about what you do today. But before I do, I guess, um, so my brother, he's, he's worked uh, um, in a lot of prison ministries. I don't know if that's, um, I'm sure that has, still has a big place in your heart. And yes. why is that important for, um, for people to, to, that are living comfy lifestyles, right? And they enjoy all the pleasures. Why is that so important for them to get in, involved with people that are hurting and people that are, are in broken states, even though they're not experiencing that themselves? Well, Jesus said it so clearly, you know, when he talked to his disciples and he says, if you do it to, if, if you do it to the least of these, do it unto me. And basically he said, when I was in prison, you know, uh, you know, you didn't visit me when I was, you know, naked, you didn't clothe me, you know, and it, it, it's our duty as, as Christians to reach the lost you know, to reach those folks that are hurting. Uh, you, you can, I mean, I've seen so many things in prison, but there are people that come from wealthy homes, well-educated people, and they're incarcerated because of drugs, because of addictions. Uh, there are people that, you know, in, in marginalized community, that they've been exploited. Uh, they've been used for trafficking. They've been used for, you know, all these crazy things that we see in our world today. And unfortunately, they get caught up in that environment. And so these are people. God created people in the likeness of his image, right? Not all yeah. are children of God, only mm -hmm. those that accept God according to John chapter 1. Mm -hmm. But we have a responsibility to reach those souls. And, um, and again, there are a lot of, you know, prodigal sons and, and prodigal, uh, prodigal sons and prodigal daughters that are out there that are, you know, looking for answers, and unfortunately, they find you know diff uh, different way uh, to escape from their world by consuming drugs, and alcohol, and so forth. And and uh, we have a responsibility. The church has a responsibility to reach those people. Amen. Yeah. Man, that's wow. David has been so powerful. Um, yep. Herman, how can people get involved? Well, number one, what are you passionate about these days, and how can people? connect with you and certainly purchase the book and, and things like that. Sure. Uh, my, my passion is uh, children's ministry. Uh, in, I, you know, again, God sends me to a Korean church. I'm like, what am I doing in a Korean American church? <laughs> and it's all to work on behalf of children and youth. Because wow. when I was a, a, yeah. a child yep. and a, a teenager, no one reached me. The hmm. church didn't go out to my community and say, hey, there's a troubled youth. You know, he needs Jesus, he needs guidance, he needs, you know, I need to mentor this individual. No, I didn't have that growing up. Yep. And so this is so important to me uh, and to this ministry, and to the ministry I'm involved in. It's called Promise Ministries International, the 414 window, where I'm one of the speakers uh, to this uh, movement. And basically is to reach children and youth from the ages of 4 to 14 years of age. Because mm. once they reach 15, uh, you know, and, and they become adult. It's tough to reach them. Yep. Uh, and, and they're being exposed to a lot of this, all this yep. nasty stuff on television, on mm. radio. And so we, the church, need to reach children. So I'm so passionate about that. Uh, I run this ministry called Powerhouse Kids. So mm -hmm. what we do is we train our children from the ages of 4 to 14 to tap into their potential and their gifts and talents that God has given them through music, through dance, uh, we teach them how to play violin, piano, mm. uh, teach them math, uh, specialized high school to get into a, a better high school here in New York City. How cool so is that? We're involved yeah. in that in that project, yeah, and it's called Powerhouse yeah. Kids. 
So God, you know, what God did, right? What the enemy meant for evil, God turned it around for good mm. to save not just, you know, uh, the kids that I'm working with, yeah. but, but nations. Because uh, I've mm. been to, again, over 50 countries uh, with the same message and teaching world leaders on the importance of children ministry. Yesterday, I spoke at our church on Joel chapter two and, you know, how God restores the years of locusts to be eaten. And what is so amazing time and time again that I've found is, is that locusts come in all kinds of shapes and forms, right? And they rob us sometimes of years. And we have these years of life that feel wasted. And God has just this incredible yes. way of taking those years that feel wasted. Amen. And then all of a sudden giving us sometimes, sometimes in your, like in your case, a platform and the ability to speak to people's lives in ways that are, that others cannot. And in that, it's just, you see the full restoration process of God on display. And it's just Amen. such a beautiful thing. Thank you. Praise God. Praise Herman, God. Thank, thank you for coming on. Easiest way for people to pick up your book or, or uh, yes. contact you. Uh, they can uh, visit my website, uh, hermanmendoza.com, hermanmendoza.com. Or you know, they can purchase a book through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Goodreads, uh, all those means. Fantastic read. Uh, this would be a great book, by the way, if you're listening to it on Audible, something like that. Yeah. Uh, very yep. easy read, but very just, just compelling read. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. God bless. You've been listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program that helps you put into action the truth of God's word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. For more info on this program, simply visit our website, themondaychristian.com. That's themondaychristian.com.